Good evening. How are you guys doing? Good, good. As uh, my mom said, uh, my name is Steve. I'm a senior at Southwestern Bible College uh, right now, which is up North Phoenix, um, 25th Street and Cactus. So it's it's a journey, a little bit. Um, But I'm a a senior, a biblical studies major, um, and I'm interning with uh, Pastor Ron in the college ministry right now, so that's going very well. I have a feeling uh, guys are going to do some amazing, amazing things in our, in our college ministry and then, you know, in the broader context of this whole church um, with what six services and all that, so it's exciting. Um, I want to share with you a little bit of my heart, my, my passion, I guess. Um, if you have your Bible and you could turn to Ephesians chapter 4 real quick before we get into... Uh, our study tonight. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 22, Paul is writing to the uh, Ephesian Christians here, and he's telling them about not only how they ought not to live, but in the manner in which they should live, how they ought to be more Christ-like. And he says to them in verse 22, of chapter 4, you were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who was being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man who has been created in God's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. Uh, last year I had a very life-changing year up at, up at Bible College. Um, I was a youth major, studying to uh, go into junior high slash high school ministry, um, and I had a, a change of heart. God kind of moves my focus more into college age, um, and just really opened my eyes to an area in our churches that are, uh, I would say, lacking, and that is, if you read the book of Matthew, chapter 22, later in, in that chapter, Christ is teaching his disciples about um, the commandments, and he says to one of the Pharisees, actually, asked him, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, you know, as I thought about all that entails, which means it's the whole person, I think, especially in the American church, we do a pretty good job of loving God with our strength. We, we serve, uh, we do things, we, we sacrifice for God. Um, our will, our, our, our emotions, you know, we worship very well, I think. But I think one of the areas that we're lacking the most in in our churches is loving God with our mind. I believe that there's a lot of Christians uh, in today's society, especially here in the States, who really don't understand, at least as well as they could, why they believe what they believe, if they even know exactly what they believe, how to articulate it at all. And so, having realized that, it kind of became my heart's passion, especially among college-age individuals, to really try and help people come alongside them and teach them uh, um, maybe a little bit about why they have good reason to believe that Christianity is true, and in fact the only, the only um, worldview that is, that is so. Uh, so with that background, Paul is, is kind of teaching the same thing here in, in Ephesians. He tells them you need to lay down your old man in verse 22, but he says uh, in verse 23 that you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 
And what he's referring to there is that, that, that renewing your mind, learning more about God, understanding more about God is not the end goal. The end goal is found in verse 22. It's that we put away our former way of life. And then in verse 24, that we, we take up a new man, that our lives are transformed, our character becomes different. So the end goal is not to know more about God. It's not to have more head knowledge and understand as much as we can about the Trinity or about how salvation works. It's to be transformed in our lives, our very character to become more like Christ. But Paul says that the means to that end of a transformed life is that our our mind needs to be renewed. And so he can kind of says it again in a different way at the end of verse 24 that as we're being created uh, or recreated in, in God's image, we are recreated in righteousness and holiness. And that is the end goal. We are to be righteous and holy in our lives. But, he says that those, those things, righteousness and holiness, they come from truth. If you don't know truth, how can you live a righteous and holy life before God? So, it's kind of the piece of the puzzle that I kind of see is, has been missing maybe in a couple ways. We need to understand truth. We need to understand what the Bible says, why we believe it, and in turn then we can apply those things and live more righteous and holy lives. So that, I guess, is... didn't mean to preach. That's kind of my background. But um, We're going to be in the book of Jeremiah tonight, um, mostly in the book of Jeremiah. And I thought it'd be interesting to, to kind of take a break from... I've been told you guys are in First Peter. Um, take a break from that and kind of focus more on a little bit of a character study Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament who uh, didn't have a very good job, to be completely honest. He was, a, just like most prophets in the Old Testament, he was pretty doom and gloom when it came right down to it. He had the um, wonderful job of telling the rest of Israel that judgment was coming because they had been living in sin. Uh, Jeremiah, in particular, lived a very hard life. He preached in his ministry a total of about 40 years or so. Um, He was given his call to ministry around the age of 17 or 18. And that started a a ministry of 40 years that didn't really reach anyone. Uh, The people of Israel were very, very hard-hearted. Didn't want to hear what he had to say. And so Jeremiah, I think, throughout this this rather long book, has a a couple heart-to-hearts with God just about where he's at in his ministry, that from a human perspective, it doesn't look like really anything is going well. And and he really begins to question every so often, God, what am I doing? Why do you have me here? What is the purpose in this? Uh, so I'd like to look at, at one of these instances tonight in Jeremiah chapter 20. Um, it seems that after reading most of the book of Jeremiah, that this is one of the lower points in Jeremiah's life. He is just, at this point in his life, absolutely distraught. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't even know why he's, he's here doing this ministry anymore. He has, at this point, been preaching this same message for about 20 years. Um, he doesn't know it, but he's a little under, maybe halfway through his, his life's ministry. And he's been preaching over and over and over again that God's going to rain destruction down on you. God is going to bring in another army from the north, which we find out later um, from the book of Daniel and other books that is the army of Babylon. 
and God says they will capture you, they will take you over, and you will go live in their land and, and be their slaves for 70 years. And there's no way you're getting out of this one. If after this judgment comes you repent, then I will be your God and I will, I will bring you out of that. But it's time for the, the other shoe to drop, as it were. And um, you guys have just been warned too many times. There's no way that I can, as God, remain just and not punish you. So Jeremiah keeps preaching this and he gets to the point where God again tells him to go into this other city and, and preach pretty much the same message. God's going God's to gonna come in and He's going to judge you. He's going to humble you because you haven't taken the time to humble yourself. So that is the background bringing us up to chapter 20. And in chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now Pasher, son of Immer, heard Jeremiah prophesy these things, this message that he had just given. He was the priest who was the chief of security in the Lord's temple. When he heard Jeremiah's prophecy, he had the prophet flogged. Then he put him in stocks, which were in the upper gate of Benjamin in the Lord's temple. And then the first part of verse 3, But the next day Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks. So here Jeremiah receives a message from the Lord, I want you to go and preach to these people. And without hesitation, Jeremiah says, Alright. So he goes and he does exactly what God tells him to do. And for doing exactly what God tells him to do, he gets whipped and put into stocks for an entire day. I don't know about you, but that would confuse me a whole lot. And it confused and kind of bewildered Jeremiah as well. He didn't know what was going on. And so, right after this, from verse 4 to to verse 6 is kind of a side note. After Pasher lets him out of the stocks, Jeremiah kind of balls him out, pronounces a curse on him, um, which may or may not have been part of what God told him to do. (laughs) He might have just been... Really frustrated at that point. But immediately after he gets out of this situation, he goes, he leaves the city. We don't, we're not told where he goes, but he goes away. And in verse 7, this is where I want to focus, verse 7 through, uh, through 9, he goes right to God. And he says, Lord, you coerced me into being a prophet. And I, silly me, I allowed you to do it. You overcame my resistance and prevailed over me. Now I have become a constant laughingstock. Everyone ridicules me. For whenever I prophesy, I must cry out, violence and destruction are coming. This message from the Lord has made me an object of continual insults and derision. Sometimes I think I will make no mention of his message. I will not speak as his messenger anymore. But then his message becomes like a fire locked up inside me, burning in my heart and soul. I grow weary of trying to hold it in, and I cannot contain it. I think this is a moment of real, just brutal honesty on Jeremiah's part. I think he's a little bit confused, uh, a little bit angry, and a whole lot frustrated just at where his ministry has been for the past 20 years. And Jeremiah really, in this, in this uh, first part of this prayer, the prayer continues, but in these first few verses, I really see he's frustrated in three areas particularly. The first area that he's frustrated in in his life is with God himself. It seems to Jeremiah, God has just abandoned him. He has no idea what he's doing. 
you know, as far as he's concerned, he might as well be just beating his head against a brick wall. It makes about as much sense to him as what he's been doing for 20 years. He's like, God, where are you? I don't understand what's going on. And really, he even goes so far as to point the finger at God and say, this is all your fault. You're the one who made me do this. I didn't necessarily want to do this right in the beginning, but you put this in me, you put this call in my heart, and now I have to go do it, and I don't like it. This is not the most comfortable ministry that I would have thought up if you'd asked me. I didn't sign up for this. Not this. I could go preach and, you know, like Peter on his first sermon, get 3,000 people to convert. That'd be cool. But to preach for 20 years and everybody hates your guts, I don't know if I like this God. And he really kind of blames God for putting him in this position since it was God's message. The second thing I think Jeremiah is frustrated at, and rightfully so, are all the people around him. Because first of all, they're completely hard-hearted, stiff-necked. They could not give a care what he says. They have been so used to this way of life. They have been so uh, ingrained in this, this lifestyle of idol worship, of, of totally abandoning the law of God. There was, in fact, one point in uh, Israel's history where they lost the law. It got put in some back room somewhere and covered over with all kinds of stuff and they just they lost it. They didn't know where it was. And later they find it and, oh, this is, this is the, the scroll of the law. This might be kind of important. I guess we should dust this off, bring it back out. This is where they're at. It'd be like if, if we all just lost our Bibles and we didn't really, weren't in that much of a hurry to find them. This is where they're living at this point in history. And so... It's no wonder that God says, I'm going to come down on you. You really don't care about me. It doesn't matter what you say. I can tell by your actions, by your lives. And Jeremiah sees that and he's frustrated. And he says, God, not only do I feel like you, you're just leading me around. I don't know what you're doing. But then he looks at everyone around him and he says, I'm a laughingstock. I keep saying these things and all I get, made, all I get is made fun of. People laugh at me. People joke about me. They ridicule me. They ostracize me. Nobody wants to have anything to do with me. And it's important to note too, at this point, Jeremiah's been saying the same thing for 20 years. And the Israelites did know enough about their law that they were commanded by Moses when the law was given that if a prophet came saying that this something's going to happen, then you would know if, what, if he was a real prophet or not by if it happened. And it's been 20 years at this point, And now if you read the rest of the book of Jeremiah, you'll find out they're going to start to accuse him of being a false prophet. He's been around for how long and what's he talking about? Nothing's happened. Nothing at all. Sure, you know, we hear word that the Babylonians are doing something up there, but not what he's talking about. And it takes 40 years for this prophecy to come true. So eventually Jeremiah is thrown in prison as a false prophet, accused of being a false prophet, almost executed as a false prophet. Things get worse, believe it or not. But at this point, he's just frustrated. He doesn't understand why nobody believes him. I mean, if you heard something directly from God, you would probably like to think that when you tell people, hey, I just heard this from God himself. He told it to me. You know, I don't know if he did the little hand on the wall thing or audible voice, whatever, but he heard this right from God. And the people are like, yeah, whatever. That's pretty, that's pretty hard-hearted. 
So he's frustrated with them. But then he's also, I think, in, in a third way, he's frustrated with the message that he has to carry. It's a huge burden. And as you find out in the rest of the book, in the background, he has to carry it alone. Other than God giving it to him, humanly speaking, Jeremiah has no one. God commands Jeremiah not to associate with the people around him. He commands him not to marry because he's afraid. God says, if you get married or if you associate and mingle with these people, they're going to they're gonna mar you. They're going to stain you. They're going to infect you with their way of life. And you're my prophet. I don't want that. So Jeremiah sets out in the beginning of his ministry as a very, very lonely man. And this message is one of the things that in his mind, and I would think in ours, brings him loneliness. He says here, every time I prophesy, I must cry out, violence and destruction are coming. That's our version of doom and gloom. Every time he has to say something, it's always bad news. That'd get old. He feels like, I don't even have anything good to tell people. You know? It, and it's frustrating. He just doesn't understand where he's at in his life. So he even says, you know what? I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to say what God wants me to say. I'll just keep my mouth closed. But it builds up inside me. This is my life's call. I can't, I can't help but say this. This is what God wants me to say. And back to God, you did this to me. <laughs> I want to stop, but I can't. I think Jeremiah's life in this particular instance has a lot of um, practical lessons for us. Um, I identify very much with Jeremiah on a lot of levels, particularly in this passage. There are times in my life where I feel like I am caught between two things that I know are good. I know that are good desires to have, but they seem mutually exclusive. I'll elaborate on that a little bit. There are times, for instance, here when Jeremiah is saying, I want to teach what you have me to teach, God. I want to stand up for what is right. But on the other hand, I want people to like me. I don't know if any of us have ever struggled with that. I know I have. And the thing is, that's not, neither of those are bad desires. It's built into us to have relationships. God designed us that way. It's okay to want people to like you. But Jeremiah has to decide, do I want people to like me more than I want to stand up for what's right? And so he has to choose the path of loneliness. He also has another dilemma here. Do I want, you know, on one hand, I want to feel accepted, but I can't stand by and accept people's sin. I can't. It, it just it irks me too much. It gets under my skin. When I see people do things that are wrong, I can't let that go. Because I serve a holy God, and I know He can't let that go, and we're we're tight, God and me. So, I kind of have to go with Him on that. But again, I don't want people to to hate me. I don't want them to avoid me. Up at my college, I'm a I'm an RA, resident assistant. It means I get the the job of um, helping any any student on campus, mostly the guys that live in my area, the apartments, to. Uh, any problems that they have, anytime they need to talk, if they need to, you know, if they're new on campus, they're freshmen, and they need to know where a class is, or you know, who to call that they need more toilet paper or anything like that. I, they come to me, 
you know, any anywhere they go, they need to go through me, and it, and it's normally it's a pretty it's a pretty cool job. I like it. Um, gives me a lot of cool opportunities just to talk with people to get to know them. Uh, but on the other hand, part of my job description is um, what we call at Southwestern write-ups. Write-ups are if anyone breaks any of the the rules listed in the handbook. It's also my wonderful job to call them on it. If someone comes in late and they didn't let anybody know, or if someone uh, gets caught doing something that they shouldn't be doing or wearing something that they really shouldn't be wearing um, or not wearing enough, um, it's my job, along with all the other RAs, we kind of have a network, but... um, I'm part of that network, and I have to either communicate with the other RAs or, or, or deal with it. And I'll just be real honest, I really don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it at all. It's not fun. I don't enjoy it. I would much rather just be people's friends. But I realize that in order to be people's friends the way that they really need a friend, sometimes you have to make hard decisions. You have to tell people that they're wrong. And sometimes there's really no easier way to say it than you're wrong. And I need to tell you because I care about you. And really that's kind of one of the places Jeremiah finds himself is these are his people. He's not a foreigner. He lives right smack dab in the heart of these people. These are his brothers and sisters and his kin, his family and his friends. And he has to tell them, not just a campus of a couple hundred students, but a whole nation you're wrong. That's pretty tough. <laughs> and I know I probably wouldn't enjoy that any more than RAing up uh, up at my college. So Jeremiah is frustrated there. That's a that's a pull definitely that you want both, but you have to choose. And one of the things, other the probably the biggest thing that I see in Jeremiah's life right here is the biggest struggle that he struggles with over and over and over again. And I'm sure that some of you guys do as well. I know I do is that he desperately, desperately wants to please God. He wants to live his life for the God of the universe and not for any man, not for any woman, not for their approval or acceptance, as much as he would like that. I want to live my life for God, to please Him, to serve Him. But on the other hand, I desperately, desperately don't want to feel like I'm alone in this world. And it's such a profound gut, you know, knock the wind out of you, oh, that's such a struggle. How do you how do you reconcile that? Because I hate feeling alone. I don't know if, if how many introverts are in here that you guys kinda like your alone time, you know, just go chill. Go to Starbucks by yourself, watch a movie by yourself. I d I'm an extrovert. I recharge when I'm around other people. When I'm alone, I get horribly depressed and I just it's not it's not good for me. Um and I get the feeling Jeremiah maybe been a little bit like that. When he was was just cut off utterly from the people that he lived with and worked with and they just didn't want to have anything to do with him. Saying, God, you know, I know, I know I'm supposed to, to please you. I know I'm doing what you asked me to do. I just took a beating for it. I remember it pretty well. But I, I'm so alone. And I know you're there for me. I know you are, but I need some human contact. I need to have someone to just sit down with and blow off to, just to be a friend and he didn't have that. And so yet again, Jeremiah, and probably the hardest struggle, I know it's one of the hardest ones for me, he had to resign himself again 
to do what was right and to give up a desire that was a great desire, but it just, just wasn't in the cards for him at this time in his life. Some really hard stuff he's having to deal with. And he's probably, if this is about 20 years into his ministry and he got the call at a little under 20, he's probably not quite 40 yet. And he's dealing with some pretty, pretty intense life issues, all by himself as well. But I think, by way of encouragement, it might help us to see that just as Jeremiah dealt with this, he wasn't the first one to deal with this kind of struggle, and he certainly wasn't the last. Um, if you can keep your finger there and turn to uh, the Psalms, chapter or, uh, Psalm 43, we'll read one of the uh, one of the psalmists. Prayers. This would have been um, around the time of David. So this would have been a little bit before the time of Jeremiah, maybe a couple hundred years or so. Psalm 43, it's only uh, five verses, so we'll go ahead and read the whole thing. The psalmist says here, Vindicate me, O God. Fight for me against an ungodly nation. Sounds pretty familiar. Deliver me from deceitful and evil men, for you are the God who shelters me. Why do you reject me? Why must I walk around mourning because my enemies oppress me? Reveal your light and your faithfulness. They will lead me. They will escort me back to your holy hill, to the place where you live. Then I will go to the altar of God, to the God who gives me ecstatic joy so that I express my thanks to you, O God, my God, with a harp. Why are you depressed, O my soul? Why are you upset? Wait for God, for I will again give thanks to my God for his saving intervention. Here the psalmist seems was dealing with pretty much the same kind of struggles, frustrations, hard times that Jeremiah was. And maybe I don't know how long it took him to write this psalm. It's only five verses, so he might have just sat down and done it. Or judging from the change of heart from the beginning to end, it sounds more like this was a painstaking process in his life. That although short, this took some life experience and some situations to change for him to come to a point where he writes, but I'm going to trust in you, God. As alone as I feel, as scared as I feel, as completely surrounded and rejected by not just everyone around me, but even you, I don't know where you are, I feel, I'm going to wait on you. I know you're going to come, you're going to vindicate me. Jeremiah does the same thing, eventually. If you'll turn back to Jeremiah 20, and we'll pick it up in in verse 10, he says, he continues his prayer, I hear many whispering words of intrigue against me. Those who would cause me terror are everywhere. They are saying, come on, let's publicly denounce him. In other words, call him a false prophet and get him off the stage. And all my so-called friends are just watching for something that would lead to my downfall. They say perhaps he can be enticed into slipping up so we can prevail over him and get our revenge on him. But here's where Jeremiah's heart changes. Verse 11, But the Lord is with me to help me like an awe-inspiring warrior. In other words, God's going to get him eventually. Right now I need to be patient and wait on God during this difficult time in my life. 
but God is going to be with me. Even if I don't feel Him, even if I don't necessarily see Him all around me like I did maybe before, He is still there. And He's going to be with me. And I just need to wait on Him. And I think maybe if I could encourage you in two areas through this passage, I know this is pretty, this is pretty heavy. I'm doom and gloom every time I... But um, one of the, the biggest things that just jumps right off the pages and kind of smacks me right in the face when I read this account of Jeremiah's life is how raw and honest, even, even to the point of brutally honest, that Jeremiah was with his God. And, and by way of encouragement, we're all going to go through tough times. We're all going to feel alone. We're all going to feel like God's not watching us. Where are you? Where do you go? You know, you're nowhere to be found. But, in those times, when we're feeling frustrated and alone, and maybe even rejected and forsaken by everyone around us and even God Himself, I guess I would just encourage you, let God know. Because here's the thing, He knows anyway. So you might as well let Him, let Him know. David did that. When he thought God had turned His back on him, he said, God, where'd you go? Why'd you turn your back on me? That seems pretty gutsy, to be honest. But I think there's a, there's a line between, you know, bawling God out and just being honest. God, my heart's hurting. I don't know where you are. I don't know where anybody is. I feel terribly alone. And I need you. The, those kind of prayers will bring healing. They'll bring patience and trust in a way that I honestly have never experienced in any other kind of of prayers because here's the thing if God already knows how we're feeling then anything we tell him isn't exactly like it's news he knows we're frustrated he knows we're angry he knows we're hurt maybe even a little bit bitter and really frustrated so when we tell him it's a way of keeping us from becoming even more hurt and angry and bitter and frustrated because if we don't let those things out especially to God who we probably are blaming in those times Jeremiah did it, it brings that communication between us and God, it brings that actually stronger and deeper relationship out of those valleys will eventually come out. I will wait on God. He will come. He will defend me. But until then, I'm just going to let you know where I'm at. And it's not fun, and I don't know where you are, but I need your help. And so, I think it's very, very, very important for us to maintain that kind of prayer life with our God for our own sakes um, and for the sake of the people around us. Since we're going through something hard and people are like, hey, how are you doing? And we just pounce on them. You know, I don't know if anybody's ever had that happen or not. That's never happened to me. But it's for our own good. It's for the good of our brothers and sisters around us. And it definitely, definitely strengthens our relationship with our God. But there's also another reason that this kind of prayer life and this kind of, of outlook can definitely strengthen our relationship, even during the hard times. And it's also found, as I said before, Jeremiah wasn't the first one to feel like this. There was someone before him, but he wasn't the last one. There were also many, many people after him. And if you'll take a look at that with me in the book of Second Thessalonians, very first chapter. And I'll start at... Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, 
Paul is encouraging these Christians here because there's really no way around it. They're going through some really rough times. Just by the fact that they're Christians, they're taking a lot of flack from the people around them, from the communities they're living in, and from the government. And in verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul writes this, This is evidence of God's righteous judgment to make you worthy of the kingdom of God, for which in fact you are suffering. For it is right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So God's not forgetting about these bad things that are happening to you. God's not forgetting about these people. And to you who are being afflicted, God will give you rest together with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. With flaming fire he will mete out punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. When he comes to be glorified among his saints and admired on that day among all who have believed, and you did, in fact, believe our testimony. And then this is, this is the really the, the crux, verses uh, 11 and 12. Paul says, And in this regard, we pray for you always, that our God will make you worthy of His calling and fulfill by His power your every desire for goodness and every work of faith, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our, Lord, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, these people are feeling roundabout, I would guess, the same way Jeremiah was. They're being persecuted. They're being dogged and just, it's, it's relentless. And Paul comes to them, he writes a letter and he says, take heart. I'm going to tell you that even though you're down in this valley and you can't see real far in the future and it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon from our perspective, let me tell you why. This is good for you. And at that point, if I would have been in their situation, I'd probably been like, oh, I'm all ears. You're going to tell me why this is good for me? Because this doesn't look good any way I look at it. People are all around me. He says, this is good because, verse 11, I'm praying for you that our God will make you worthy of His calling. One of the reasons why we go through these times why we feel these struggles, why God allows us to fall into these situations is because God is in the process of refining us. He's in the process of making us worthy of our calling. In other words, more uh, better summed up in verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You go through these times to make you more like Jesus. There was a, a study, I don't know if you guys uh, probably do remember the, the first biodome that they built out in uh, the desert. They were able in that biodome to simulate every weather condition except one. Any idea which, which weather condition it was? Wind. They couldn't simulate wind because they didn't have the atmosphere to do it and they didn't have the tides and everything. So they had rain. They, you know, plants were watered, but they couldn't simulate wind. That turned out to be a really big problem. Because when they went in after a year of just letting this, this enclosed environment do its thing, they went into the trees, 
And they were able to push trees that were probably as big around as I am over with their hand. Because without wind, there was no reason for the trees to build up resistance. There was no reason for the trees to put their roots down. So they spread their roots out real shallow. And they didn't, they didn't spread them out far. They didn't spread them out deep because they didn't need to. There's no wind. No reason to. And the first time that any pressure from the outside came, the whole thing fell down. If that's not a perfect picture of maybe what God can do in our lives, wind is actually a good thing because it forces us to put our roots down deeper. It forces us to grow stronger in God and to put our trust in Him, to get to that point where, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust in you. And I trust that you'll bring me out. I trust that you'll defend me eventually. I don't know when it's going to be. It might be at the end, the end time, when everybody's judged, I guess I can wait that long. But you're going to make all things right. And so it's, it's through this that Paul is kind of saying the same thing. The whole purpose of this wind, if you will, this big storm in your life, is not only to make you trust God, but he's actually turning you into something completely different. Kind of like in Ephesians 4. You are in the process of having your life transformed. You are looking more and more and more like Jesus Christ with every storm, with every gust of wind. And so, while it may not help necessarily a whole lot, when you're in the middle of it, and you look up and you can't see any help from anywhere, from anybody around you or even God Himself, it helps to be able to, like Paul did, look at the goal, at the future, and say, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not any time in the near future, but it is coming. This is for a reason, and the reason is, so that you may glorify God with your life, so that you will be strong, so that you will have a faith that will make people look at you and go, wow, where did, I, where did they get that from? And it's a faith that you can't fake because it only comes through those struggles. Feeling frustrated as all get out and not knowing what God is doing in your life, not knowing if he's even around. And that's only the only faith that I think is authentic enough to make the world want what we have. I think if there was any other better way to do it, God would do it that way. But this is the best way. So that's how he chooses to do it. So from Jeremiah's life to the psalmist to to Paul and the Thessalonians, this is nothing new. And I don't know where you guys are uh, in your lives. I'm actually just coming out of one of those times of just real lonely. You know, God, where are you? What are you doing? Uh, This is just a rough first month of school, this this final year Um, but you get to the point eventually well I don't know what he's doing but he is doing something he didn't forget about me Um, so if I can yeah by way of encouragement I would I would just have you guys remember if you can be honest with God and just remember he he didn't forget about you he's taking you somewhere and it might not get there tomorrow but you will get there you most certainly will so does anybody have any comments questions well, I don't know. Um, let's see what time it is. Whoop. I'm throwing stuff. Sorry. It's, um, it's about, yeah. I think that's a common thread in, in Scripture. God just over and over again saying, I'm not here to make your life easy. In fact, I may make it harder. And I don't necessarily need your permission to do that. But um, I might make it harder, but it's, 
it's for the best in the end. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> but um, absolutely. And that's the thing. I'm I'm glad that God has the wisdom to know when not to answer our prayers <laughs> and say, I'm glad you're concerned, but I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> they need it. It's good for them. It's kind of like I don't know, drinking carrot juice. I guess I don't really <laughs> like carrot juice, but I know it's good for you. So yeah, which I am. So that yeah, probably all the more reason I should. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to find it right now. It's uh. It's a passage in James where uh, James talks about that, that very, very thing. And he's, actually, he says it here um, when he's talking about asking for wisdom in James chapter 1. You know, he says in James 1, 5, If anyone is deficient in wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without, without reprimand, and it will be given to him. And then here's the kicker in verse 6, but he must ask in faith with no doubting. In other words, it's like Jesus says um, to the disciples. First of all, you do not have because you don't ask. If you would ask, I would give it to you. And then secondly, some of the things that you ask for, you don't get because you ask for the wrong reasons that you would be able to as, as I think it says in um, one version, that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, you're asking just just to have it. It's not going to serve you any purpose, and there's be no reason for me to give it to you that would glorify me. So even when you do ask, sometimes I don't give it to you. But I think there is that principle there is, is yes, God knows exactly what we need before we ask it, before we were even made to ask it. But there's that faith. You know, If God just did everything for us, There'd be no reason for us to have any faith at all. Um, yeah, exactly. And God didn't make us robots. You know, if, if He wanted to do everything for us or have us do everything, well, then there'd be no reason for us to, to make any choices. Everything would happen to us. And I think God wants us to, I think as part of love, if you make someone love you, is it really love? You know, love is something that's given freely. And I think it's the same with our prayers. Is God wants us to ask. He wants, I think even from those principles, he wants so so badly to give us things, but we don't ask, so he won't. So I think it's an interesting it's an interesting principle to consider. You know, how many things have I missed out on in my life because I just didn't ask? <laughs> That's kind of humbling in some ways. Definitely. And I think it has to do as well with how God wants us to look at him. If if God gave us everything that we needed, or even some of the things we wanted, and there was no communication necessary, well, then God would probably look more to us like the big gumball machine in the sky. You know, you put in your quarter, you, you say your prayer, or you, you just do something, and you get, you know, you put in A, you get B. And God doesn't work like that. God's a person, and He wants us to look at Him as such. And so I think that might be part of the reason as well, is, like you said, He. He just wants to hear from us. He, he's a person. He's a being. He has uh, emotions just like we do. And um, I think part of that means, you know, God's capable of getting his feelings hurt too. I think you would find that in, in all the, a lot of the Old Testament books where God says, you're my children, I love you, but you really hurt my heart on this one. I'm going to have to set you guys straight, you know. Well, I, I think certainly to start with the, the latter of what you said, it 
I don't think it's necessarily biblical to pray for everything because to be quite honest, God being a person and has priorities just like we do, I know I don't know how heretical this is going to sound. I don't really think God cares if you get a spot by the front of the grocery store. And what I mean by that is is right, God God cares about things like our character. Um how we love others, how we love Him, our patience, our faith. How well are we loving people? So to me, you know, if I'm going to pray very generically, God bless me. I don't know how, um, but I'm asking you. Well, that might come in the form of, you know, something physical. It might come in the form of a trial that produces more patience in my life. And during them, like... did you not hear me right? Did something get mixed up on the way? I asked you to bless me. What, looking back on it, you see, he really did. In a way that and far outweighs any material possession he could have given me. I'm a more patient person now. I understand how to love God better. I understand how to love other people more. And that is, that's priceless. So I think, you know, there is the principle of be careful what you ask for. But on the other hand, God does always know best. So he's going to give us exactly what we need when we need it. Um, and I think that if we just have the faith to ask, do it. I don't know what it is going to look like, but I'm just asking you to do it. Then I think he'll he'll do that. You know. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that um, it's good to pray for. I don't necessarily know that I pray for it enough, but just to um, you know to get to that point where you ask God, all right, God, I want to. I want to see the world the way you see it. I want you to, to. I want to feel about people the way that you feel about people. Look at them the way you look at them. I want to see instead of you know, someone who just went off on me for no reason. I want to see someone who's really hurting and, and maybe bitter and, and really angry about something that has nothing to do with me, but they just kind of jumped on my face about it, you know. And and I want to see what you see, and and feel what you feel, and. Um, it's a really big prayer to pray because you never know what you're going to get. But uh, I think those are the kind of prayers that we ought to pray more often. Um, and I think, too, part of that is, is, like Paul says, becoming more and more like Christ, Christ coming out in us and, and we glorifying Him through our lives um, is looking at people that way, definitely. Exactly. And that's that's he's saying, you know, not that... Pray about every, don't be anxious. Pray about everything, and God will answer those prayers. That's not what He says. He says, you know, don't be anxious. Pray about everything, and through that, God will give you peace. So no matter what happens, you know God's with you. You know He's going to work it out. And it's just a totally different mindset than we're used to. Um, see how much time I have. Uh, no, it's no, not at all. I think that those kind of principles are principles that will tell you certainly something that you can observe for yourself is absolutely true. Um, Positive people do attract positive people. They're fun to be around. They're likable. Um, They're the life of the party. And and people just enjoy people who are optimistic. And I think certainly there's nothing unscriptural about that. We're to have joy at all times, no matter what our circumstances are. Uh, On the other hand, you have the principle that where ought our confidence to come? Where is it supposed to come from? And, and to that I would say principles like law of attraction or, or whatever, 
you would find that those are principles that are that are uh, packaged very differently, but at their core they are um, very similar to the kind of thinking that is is um, taught in worldviews um, like Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, um, things that are that are you know what you are as a human a very powerful entity. You're full of a lot of um, potential, and you can, if you want to, channel that potential into a result. Yeah, that's kind of the word right. Um, and I would say that, on the other hand of that, from a Christian perspective, while you know it's good to be positive, and that is very encouraging, and we are commanded in Scripture to to love our brothers and sisters and to encourage them wherever we can. Um, I would take issue with not with the positive part of it, but with the, the, the creation, the confidence aspect. I know from, from uh, almost all the Psalms um, and, and a lot of Paul's teaching as well that our confidence is not to come from ourselves or anything that we can achieve by human means, no matter how it is. Our confidence is to come from the Lord and what He can do through us um, because... You know, in and of ourselves, we really don't have, I would argue that we really don't have that power. Um, that's not something that we're created with. Uh, it's, it's a power that God can achieve through us, yes, anything. Um, but it's His power nonetheless. So it would be, I would say that something that that, as much as you can, take that and say, all right, I should be encouraging. Um, absolutely, absolutely. But I would, I would probably cut it off right there, and just say, yeah, right. Well, and that's, that's what happens a lot of times, is there's there's something that you know, this is right, this is good, and it gets, um, while they're giving you that, they slip something else underneath of it, and, and it's one of those, you have to, if you're going to take the one, you have to take the other as well, and the one is true, but the other isn't, and and it kind of it gets you to, to, to mix belief systems, but... That's good that you were able to pick that up. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, in some ways, it goes back to the original lie in the garden, is that when you eat of this, you'll be like God. You'll you'll have some of the attributes of God. You'll know good from evil. And taking it a step further, they would argue, you'll be able to create. And I would say that we'll never have that, you know. Yeah. Well, certainly there's, I think there's a bigger principle behind what they're getting at you know and and certainly with you know you need to it comes with discernment and wisdom and how to apply it but definitely like what Paul talks about in, in um, Philippians 4 8 is just be careful what you're filling your mind with and that goes for anything whether it's through entertainment or the music that we listen to or even the company that we keep um, Proverbs would talk about that as well being careful and being very uh, vigilant and, and very regimented and disciplined in what am I putting in my mind um, because it does make a difference. It changes what's in your heart and um, and therefore what comes out of your mouth and your life and, and all that. So, yeah. Exactly. Because, you know, if what he's asking for is, you know, like sugar-frosted sugar droplets or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> you know, that might not be, it might be what he wants, it might be what he's asking for, but it might not be the best thing for him. So she's going to, in her 
greater understanding, pass that over. But if he wants it, and it's something that he has the means to get, and he keeps his mouth shut, how is she going to know? I mean, now God obviously would know, but I think the same principle applies. Well, if you're not going to ask me, you, you missed it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's really like what Pastor Lynn's been talking about with the, the fair. The purpose of our lives is to glorify God, not for everything to be, you know, and, and if, if, if the life being stacked against me, as it certainly was stacked against Paul, brings more glory to God, well, then so be it. If that's, if that's what the ultimate goal, it depends on what, what the end result, what you're looking forward, you know. So, absolutely. That's uh, about all the time we have. So uh, let me pray real quick, and we will uh, be dismissed. Father God, I thank you so much for just this day that you've given us. Um, I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, just another day to to live and to uh, just experience life that you've given us. And thank you so much for the opportunity just to know you, to know each other, um, and to just draw ever closer to you, Father. I ask that... Uh, just through your word and through the uh, the lessons that you are trying to teach us, uh, God, that we wouldn't harden our hearts against them, but that, Father, we would be receptive and that we would just really try and apply uh, what you're trying to, to teach us, that we would come to you um, about all things, Father, uh, because we know you like to hear from us, Father, that we would ask um, that you would bless us. And, Father, I ask that now, that you would just bless us as a church, as, as individuals, um, Whatever that means, I don't know how that's going to work out, Father, but you do, and so we're asking for it right now. Um, I just thank you for your word and for how much of an encouragement it is is to me and to all of us, I'm sure. Um, I just pray that we would be hearers uh, and, and doers of your word, that we would not just stop at listening, but that we would apply it to our lives and so that we might, as Paul says, um, glorify Jesus Christ in us and and uh, just show him to all those around us, Father. So we thank you and uh, just for the opportunity to hear your word and to know you more. And we uh, pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.